Amen. I invite you to take out your Bibles and turn to John chapter 4. John 4, uh, starting in verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Ascends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Please be seated. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for the blessing of your word. We pray, Lord, that as it's opened, that our hearts would be laid bare before you. Lord, you've said that your word cuts dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. We pray, Lord, that it would do that for us, that it would uh, cut to the heart of who we are, that it would peel back uh, the layers, uh, the defenses, the ways that we would seek to dodge uh, pull ourselves out from under the conviction that you want for us. Lord, we pray that your spirit would bless the preaching of your word, that it would go forth and sanctify, that it would edify, that it would convict, and that it would bring sinners to yourself and would build up your people. Lord, may you be glorified in the preaching of your word now and always. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we pick up this morning where we left off in John chapter 4. Last week, we began to look at the discussion of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. Now, we saw there Jesus broke the typical social conventions of his day, firstly by associating with her, and then by going so far as to even ask for a drink from her bucket, something that a Jew would not typically do. So she is stunned and asked how he, a Jew, could ask for a drink from her, a Samaritan woman, somebody who the Jews would have thought un clean and who indeed would have been ceremonially unclean. But then Jesus turns the tables on her and said that if she simply knew who he was, that she would ask him and he would grant her living water. Now to this point, she continued to remain oblivious. She did not get it. She didn't understand who Jesus was or what he was really offering. Taking him literally, she asked, Where's your bucket? Where do you plan to get this so-called living water? She even gets a little bit sassy and challenges him. Do you think that you are greater than our ancestor Jacob? And are you greater than Israel himself? Who do you think you are? Jesus answered that whoever drinks the water that he gives 
will never be thirsty again, but instead the water would become a spring in them, welling up, leaping up, bubbling over to eternal life. That brings us to our text this morning. Read with me in verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Right? She still is taking him literally. Now granted, miracle water, that would permanently remove our thirst. That would be pretty neat to have. This woman misunderstands Jesus again and assumes that that's all that he means. Sir, give me this special water. It'd be fantastic. I wouldn't have to come out to this well anymore. I wouldn't get thirsty. It would save me a lot of time. (laughs) Now, helpful as such water might be, Christ has something much better in mind. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying you have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now this seems to be a very abrupt change of topic. And as D.A. Carson points out, while it is abrupt, it is not artificial. Carson writes, The Samaritan woman has already failed to grasp who Jesus is, and misconstrued the nature of the living water he was promising. By this turn in the dialogue, Jesus is indicating she has also misunderstood the true dimensions of her own need and the real nature of her self-confessed thirst. Now, hers has been a painful life. To have been married five times and to not be married now means in one way or another the loss of five husbands. We're not told whether it was through death that each marriage ended or worse than death through her husband's or her own sin. But whatever the causes, she has had a difficult life. And whether or not she was at fault, for the dissolution of her past marriages, at this moment, she is living in sin. She is living with a man she is not married to. Now verse 6, if you back up, we saw that it said it was the sixth hour at which she came out to draw water. By our reckoning, that would be around noon. This was not the normal time to come to the well and draw water. Who would really want to do the heavy lifting and carrying during the heat of the day when cooler hours would have been an option? Next, we would ask, why is this woman alone? Why would she be coming out at such an inopportune time for this difficult task? Perhaps it was because she wants to be alone. She is an adulteress. She is presently living in sexual sin. This man she has now is not her husband. And perhaps this was the reason she was here at this hour, so ashamed of her life that she would avoid the more comfortable hours to come draw water, 
and chooses instead to come draw water alone in the heat of the day. She has a much deeper need than her physical thirst. She truly needs the living water of Christ. So firstly, to my brothers and sisters, I hope we can all see ourselves in this woman. Now, this text is often used as a, a passage for evangelism, right? Be intentional like Jesus. Seek out opportunities to have meaningful conversations with others, and I, I think that's all fine. But what I believe will be even more significant, even more effective in stirring us up to go and evangelize, is if we rather see ourselves in the woman in the story. We are the sinners. We are the ones who have been burdened by our sin and shame, hardened toward God, blinded to the glories that were right in front of us and looking in all the wrong places to satisfy our spiritual thirst. And though we, like her, may have dodged and dodged, missed the point, insulted Christ, still he graciously pursued us. For those who are in Christ, from the time he has made us his own, he has graciously kept us. Though we have lived often in a manner unworthy of the calling we have received, Though we, in our moments of backsliding and weakness, have frequently turned away from the fountain of living waters, instead to carve out broken cisterns for ourselves. Though we, even now, may be hanging on to things in our lives that we know grieve our Savior's heart. Yet he is ever persistent, ever patient, he does not give up on those who are his own. You may have even made shipwreck of your faith. You may have fallen into a sin that you think is so grievous, so evil, that there is no coming back from it. My friend, do not despair. For however great a sinner you are, Christ is a greater Savior. Christ is not surprised by your sin. If you will have it, in fact, he made atonement for your sin. Do not blaspheme the value of the blood of Christ by supposing that your sin is greater than his blood. He is mighty to save. And so even now, turn again and find forgiveness. If we see ourselves not as Christ, but as the woman who was so desperately in need of Christ and who found so patient and gracious a Savior, this will spur us on to evangelism. For we will have the heart conviction that if Christ could forgive someone as wretched and needy as we were, he can save anyone. Those who have tasted the true grace of Christ, those who have drunk deeply of the living water Christ offers, 
They become a fountain overflowing and desiring to share that gift with others. And there is truly a world in need out there. You may know this Sunday is the second annual uh, Biblical Sexuality Sunday. It is the anniversary of the passing of Bill C-4 into Canadian law, which criminalized what it calls conversion therapy. Now, this bill, you may remember, bans any practice, treatment, or service aimed at directing a person uh, toward heterosexuality and away from homosexuality. It bans any practice, treatment, or service designed to direct a person toward embracing and accepting the sex that God created them. Any practice, treatment, or service that does this is now illegal under our Canadian criminal code as of last year, subject to large fines and up to five years in prison. Now, I hope we can all see the implications of that. And I really hope we can also see why the church must reject this wicked law. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And contrary to what secular culture is declaring, there is no life to be found in lifestyles of sin. Embracing a life of homosexuality, transgenderism, or anything else under the banner LGBTQ+, will not lead to life. Let's consider again 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. This is from the 95 NASB. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Those who embrace these sins as their lifestyle, Scripture says plainly, will not inherit the kingdom of God. There will be no salvation for them, for even if they claimed the name of Christ, they are proving through their actions that Jesus is not their Lord, that they don't truly love him. For Jesus himself said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so you cannot treat the grace of Christ as a license for sin. You cannot call Christ your Lord and Savior while living in and celebrating that which he has forbidden. In fact, if you live in that way, you are giving evidence through your life that the root of the matter is not in you. You are demonstrating through your life that you have not been born again. 1 John 3, 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, lifestyle of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep sinning because he has been born of God. So if you are living a lifestyle that God has defined as sinful, you must know the only result 
will be damnation. Such people will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the good news, which is right at the heart of the gospel message, is that there is hope for sinners such as these. If you look at 1 Corinthians 6, you'd notice the Samaritan woman belongs on this list that Paul makes. She was a fornicator. She was currently shacked up with her boyfriend. The man she had was not her husband. And yet we see Christ graciously pursued her. Not to affirm her sin, not to change or in any way alter the law of God, in order to make room for sinful lifestyles like hers. Instead, he pursued her to free her from the power and penalty of sin. 1 Corinthians 6 goes on. After listing all of these sins, it says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So we see change is possible. These lifestyles, these sins are not immutable, unchanging, fixed realities which must forever hold sway over our lives, but rather we see Christ sets us free from both the penalty of sin and the power of sin. What does that mean? Well, though the desires of our flesh, of our sinful nature, may still continue to pull us toward sin, to incline us toward that which God has forbidden, we know that those who have the Spirit of God are also given new desires, desires to obey God, to follow His ways, and they are given the ability to withstand temptation through His Spirit. While we do not have the promise that the life of a Christian will be temptation-free, we do have the promise that God will grant us everything we need for life and godliness. 2 Peter 3.3 3. We are promised that through the Spirit, God will grant us the grace we need to endure temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out that you may stand up under it. Through the gospel, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, gluttons, blasphemers, cowards, Liars, the selfish, the lustful, the unfaithful, the bitter, the unforgiving, the greedy, the grumbling, the rebellious, the hateful, the cruel, the angry, the proud, and the disobedient find forgiveness. And such were some of you. And I think it's safe to say, such were all of us. We are all sinners of some sort, 
We all need the grace of Christ. And through it, we who are in Christ have been washed. We have been and are being sanctified. And we were justified. And truly, this continues to be man's deepest need. And so the civil government can outlaw the preaching of the gospel to whichever groups of people they want. But the church must never cease holding forth the light, life, hope, and living water of the gospel to all, no matter how culturally celebrated or protected their sin may be. When we have come to terms with our own need, when we see rightly the grace of our Savior that he has shown to us, then we will always answer with the apostles when told to stop preaching the name of Christ. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. But, but for us, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We are the needy ones. And so the gospel, when rightly understood, deeply humbles us. It, and it gives us the right perspective toward those who are still lost in sin. As the church of Jesus Christ, we will not turn up our noses at those who are lost in sin. For we know that apart from the grace of Christ, we would be right there too. And we also know that Christ, in his grace, can transform that sinner, just as he has done for us. And so the church is not a club for the self-righteous. Instead, it is a hospital for sinners. Christ is the great physician. And a physician will not avoid sick people. He will forgive and heal all who come in repentance and faith. So we, as Christ's people, must remember who we are, and we must always maintain a posture of humility and grace toward those who are lost, or toward those who have backslidden, toward those who offend us, insult us, or even hate us. In all these things, we must imitate our Savior and remember the grace he has shown to us, that same grace we see him extending to the Samaritan woman at the well. And we'll see more of his kindness in the rest of this conversation. Let's continue with our text from verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, Jesus had knowledge of her life. Right? He knew about her past, which she immediately recognized to be supernatural. Right? Without any prior contact, Jesus knew all about her life. And he had begun to peel back some of those layers. And so as soon as she realized that she was talking to a prophet, being grateful for the opportunity, and perhaps also wanting to shift the conversation to something a little more comfortable than her messy past, she asks him one of her biggest theological questions, right? Something that for centuries had been a point of contention between the Jews and Samaritans, and that is, where is the proper place to worship? 
Now remember again, the Samaritans were the remnants of the people of the northern kingdom of Israel that had broken away from the people of Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah. And so the, the remnants of these people from Israel had intermarried with the pagans that had been moved to the region by the king of Assyria. If you remember that from last week. And so their worship had become a mixture of paganism and the worship of Yahweh. Now, the place of worship was truly something God had spoken about. Deuteronomy 12, verse 5, God declares that his people are not to worship as the pagans did. They are not to worship using their altars or their high places. Instead, they are to tear them down, uh, burn their altars, burn them with fire. And verse 5, God said, Deuteronomy chapter, uh, what did I say? 12. Uh, you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, and the list goes on. Now the Samaritans, they accepted the Pentateuch, the first five books, um, but they did not hold the rest of the Old Testament to be authoritative. So you can see how that would lead to a problem. Deuteronomy tells us that Israel is to seek the place that the Lord shall choose, but Deuteronomy does not tell you where that place will be. In fact, it is not until much later that God tells David where to make preparations for the building of the temple, which Solomon then built in Jerusalem. And God, of course, confirmed this choice by uh, descending. His glory came and filled the temple of Solomon. And so by the time of Christ, the Samaritans had developed their own religious heritage and their worship centered not in Jerusalem, but they worshiped on Mount Gerizim. And so we can understand the woman's question. She perceives that Jesus is a true prophet due to his supernatural knowledge of her life. And she asks him one of the biggest pressing theological questions of her day. I think we can relate with her here. I can imagine myself doing something similar. Right? Imagine if you encountered a true prophet or a true apostle, if you had the chance to talk directly to Jesus or Paul or Moses, I, for one, would certainly bring some of the theological disputes of my day, right? get, get him to settle something for me. Uh, and so she asks this big question. And interestingly, though, as important as this question would have been, Jesus responds by pointing to something greater. Right, and that is due to the fact that Jesus had arrived, that the Messiah had arrived. The question she was asking was about to become irrelevant. Jesus answers, verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. In other words, what's about to happen will bring a change such that the place of worship will not matter. You know, this mountain, that mountain, Gerizim, Jerusalem, not going to be relevant. And Jesus does something else that is interesting, and that is he mentions the Father. He refers to God as Father. Now, she had not mentioned God as Father. He did. Why? Well, as Jesus has been doing through this whole conversation, 
Jesus continues to aim at the heart of the matter. Not on this mountain or on that mountain will you worship the Father. Now she has mentioned fathers, right? Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Are you greater than our father, Jacob? She, to this point, has been focused on the externals of place, heritage, and tradition. And so Jesus shifts the focus once more. Whatever the fathers may have done in the past, there is a different father that you should be concerned about in worship. The Father. And the time is coming when the place of worship, where you worship the Father, won't be relevant. If you remember back in John chapter 2, Jesus had already said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. John Piper comments on that text. In other words, he had already said that he himself was the new temple, the new meeting place with God. The temple was about to pass away as the focal point of worship. And what would be in its place? A new mountain? A new city? A new building? No. A new person. The Son. Now we see, like many great writers, John employs a good deal of foreshadowing through his gospel account. Just think, if you hadn't already read John, and if you didn't know the full story, these little tidbits here and there would pique your interest, right? A hint about the temple, about the place of worship no longer being important. So John, in his gospel, drops some of these hints, but he doesn't answer them right away. Now, with the benefit that we have of hindsight and the completed canon of Scripture, we know the whole story, right? Why was the place of worship no longer going to be important? Right, what was coming? The hour was coming. What does that refer to? Now, a good storyteller can draw you in, can raise these questions in your mind, which would then cause you to keep reading or listening to learn the answers. In verse 22, Jesus continues, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. He says, You Samaritans, you worship what you do not know. By rejecting much of the Old Testament, holding again only to the first five books, uh, the Samaritans are outside the stream of God's revelation. 1 Kings 17.33 explained that the Samaritans of the region feared the Lord, but also served their own gods. And so Jesus implies to the Samaritan woman that there are some deficiencies in their worship. And truly, if the religious pluralism, or this combining of pagan worship with the worship of Yahweh of centuries past, if that was still present in Samaria at the time of Christ, well, that would be very clear proof that they did not know the God they claimed to worship. 
For if you think that Yahweh will be happy to be worshipped alongside idols, you do not know him. In fact, if you simply took seriously what the Pentateuch said, you would know that. It is literally the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. That, of course, means in my presence. You shall not worship other gods. God will not share his glory with another. So whether it's a reference to the, to the polytheism, this religious syncretism, this mashing of religious practices of their past, or of their ignorance regarding where the true place was that the Lord had chosen to put his name, Jesus indicates here there is something lacking, something deficient in their worship, specifically in their knowledge of God. You worship what you do not know. In contrast, Jesus says, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Carson writes, whatever else was wrong with Jewish worship, at least it could be said that their object of worship was known to them. The Jews stood within the stream of God's saving revelation. They know the one they worship, for salvation is from the Jews. Now that, of course, does not mean that all those of Jewish heritage will be saved. For as John has already demonstrated, it is not your physical birth that matters, but your spiritual birth. Right? You must be born again. And Jesus said that to Nicodemus, who was a Jew. You must be born again. Those who believe in Christ, who received him, were given the right to become the children of God. So no, not all Jews will be saved simply by virtue of their ethnicity or their heritage. Uh, but rather, uh, they do stand in the stream of God's revelation. Uh, and they can also even be said to be the vehicle that God used for that revelation. Right. In Judah is God known. His name is great in Israel. And furthermore, as both the law, the Pentateuch, and the rest of the Hebrew scriptures testify, it was through the Jews that the Messiah would come. Through the Messiah would come true knowledge of God and the true way of worshiping and serving him. So in these ways, it can be said, salvation is from the Jews. Verse 23 but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. While the Jews were right regarding the place of worship being Jerusalem, and though they had the unique privilege of receiving and preserving uh, the oracles of God, the, the written revelation of God, what was coming and had now arrived, Jesus said, would make all the debates about location of worship irrelevant. And so we see with this turn in the conversation, Jesus continues drilling down further. The Samaritan woman has been discussing these externals. Jesus has been aiming at the heart. She asks about the place Jesus answers by focusing on the person. 
And so we'll expand next week on what it truly means to worship from the heart, to worship in spirit and truth. Uh, But to close this morning, we'll wrap up by looking at how and why these worship practices were about to change. So we know that the temple was very, very central to Old Covenant worship, right? The temple was the dwelling place of God on earth. Even three times a year, uh, pilgrimages were required to the temple. The temple was the place where sacrifices were offered, where the priests lived and worked. It was at the very center of their religious life. But the time was coming and was now here when all of this would change. Why? For the Messiah had come. Jesus came and in coming, he came to fulfill these old covenant types and shadows. You can turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, look at what it says about the law, about Old Covenant worship. Hebrews 10, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true forms of those realities, just a shadow of the good things to come, not the true forms of those realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. So we see, first off, that the sacrifices that were given under the Old Covenant law were simply said to be a shadow of the good things to come. They themselves could not accomplish the forgiveness of sins. He looked down to verse 4 of chapter 10 in Hebrews. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So these sacrifices, though they were for a time required by God, they never took away sins. They never perfected those for whom they were made. No, instead, in the continual offering of these animal sacrifices every time, again and again, year after year, what you have was a regular reminder of sins. They pointed to the need for cleansing, which they themselves could not accomplish. They pointed to the need for a greater sacrifice. One that would not need to be repeated year after year. One that would actually accomplish perfect redemption for those for whom it was made. This is what Christ came to do. If you're with me in Hebrews, turn back to Hebrews chapter 9 and let's look at verse 26. It says this, Christ, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Christ provided the greater sacrifice. Or let us turn and consider the priesthood, the successors of Aaron. They themselves were imperfect men. 
Right? Before they could minister, they themselves needed to be cleansed. They needed sacrifices for themselves so that they could then stand and serve as priests. Not only were they imperfect, but there were many of them. Hebrews 7.23 says, They were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Right? The reason you had so many priests is that they would get old and they would keep dying. And then you needed a new one and a new one. And on it goes. In contrast, Christ holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And consider this, Christ as our great high priest did not enter into the earthly temple, but you can look with me, Hebrews 9, 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, right, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So that earthly temple with its holy of holies, right, the most holy place, was simply a copy of the heavenly throne room. And Christ has entered into the true most holy place in heaven, into the presence of the Father by means of his own blood, and he has secured an eternal redemption. Christ came, and through his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and intercession in the presence of the Father, he has fulfilled and is fulfilling everything that the earthly temple pointed toward. The law had but a shadow. Christ is the true substance of those realities. And so what you and I, the Samaritan woman, and every other sinner truly needs is Christ. The one who paid the debt for sin that we could not pay. Christ, the one who paid the debt for sin that no number of animal sacrifices could ever atone for. What we need is Christ as our great high priest who continually prays for us in the presence of his Father. A great mediator, a great intercessor, who pleads upon the merit of his own blood that none of his sheep would be lost. This is what we need, and this is how any and all may be reconciled with God. Whatever you've done, whatever you're still doing, if you are here today, it is not too late for you. Come to Christ and find forgiveness. Find the one who meets your deepest need, even if you didn't know before today what that need was. Come to Christ. Find forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life.
We all need Christ who grants living water, his own spirit who comes to his elect people and applies the benefits of his work to our hearts and then dwells in us such that we in our bodies are now said to be temples of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. And so we see there is no temple needed for sacrifice for Christ has offered the once for all sacrifice of himself. There is no need for earthly priests to mediate between us and God, for Christ is our eternal high priest and the one mediator between God and man. And he has made his people into a kingdom of priests that have direct access to the Father through him. And there is no building needed as the special dwelling place of God on earth, for God's own spirit now dwells in the hearts of his people. So we see the question of place is no longer relevant. For God has chosen in Christ not merely one nation to be confined to one geographical location on the globe, but rather Christ has purchased people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. His kingdom is global. His reign, universal. Now here we are, halfway around the world, worshiping the Father. We are to go out in the authority of Christ and to preach this good news of the kingdom to all. To disciple the nations, for Christ has bought them with his blood. Let us go, live out, and proclaim the good news. Amen.